morning. If I didn't say it, my name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at the house. And uh, so far this year, we've been going through the book of Mark. It is the first gospel that was written. And today we're going to jump right in. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Open those, whether it's digitally or um, analog. If you don't have a Bible, we have physical Bibles out on the bookshelf you can grab on the way home. Otherwise, they're also free on digital app stores. And if you're opening physically, look, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and those are the four Gospels in the New Testament. We're going to be Mark chapter 5. Now, we have a tradition of giving the Scriptures our full attention uh, when we read the Scripture for for the sermon. And so if you would like to, you can join me in standing um, or uh, sit and just give the Scriptures your full attention. Attention as I read Mark 5, starting in verse 21. This is going to be a long one, y'all, okay? Here we go. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little girl, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of The synagogue leader, Jesus, saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let us pray. God of every tribe, every tongue, every color, every nation, we thank you for the scriptures, that they have persisted throughout the millennia, that we can still read them and learn from them, seek you in them. And I pray that today, whatever you have for us to learn, I pray that it would stick, that it would become a part of the framework of our faith, that our faith would become stronger as we become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, y'all. You can have a seat. All right, so real quick, what were your favorite sandwiches? Anyone? 
peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Reuben, Reuben's. I had a Philly cheesesteak in the back. I didn't eat one, but someone said Philly cheesesteak in the back. BLT. Okay. Oh, what? A torta, yes. Yes, anyone else? Anyone else? Ooh. Well, let's go to lunch. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to say the name of a sandwich, and you tell me where it's from, okay? Uh, the Big Mac. The Whopper. The Frisco Burger. The The Double Double. Come on, California folk. In and out. Okay, the King Number 11. Hungry Hobo. Gargantuan. Jimmy John's. The Humpty Dumpty. Roosters. The work of art. Arthur's. Now, I don't actually have a lot to say about sandwiches, but uh, I, I wanted to bring it up because I was curious, and then you guys are just going to love this. Has anyone noticed that Mark likes sandwiches? And this isn't a joke. This isn't a joke. This is real. Mark uses sandwiches as a writing technique, and I'm not just talking about at the end when he says, give the girl something to eat. There's this writing technique that Mark uses He uses it nine different times in 16 chapters. He does it so often that Bible scholars have a name for it. It is the Markin sandwich. That is a biblical phrase. (laughs) Important, smart scholars talk to each other with words like the Markin sandwich. So what is it? What happens is Mark will start a story. He'll lay down that first slice of bread. And then he'll interrupt that story with another event. Just then, to circle back around to finish the first story with that top piece of bread. It makes for good writing. First, because sandwiches are good. But really, it's because this is just how life works. If you can make it through a whole day as a human being without your plans being interrupted, you are either a hermit or you're dead. Like, those are the options. And if you have children in your life, then it is an absolute miracle if you make it through 24 hours without any interruptions. Because life being interrupted is so normal, when we read the Bible, we might just read passages like this and not even notice that it happened or miss some of what Jesus is doing and what Mark is trying to show us with the interruption, with the sandwich. See, we tend to treat 99% of the interruptions that we experience every day as they're just coincidences, as though they're just meaningless moments that just happened to happen because for the most part, they probably are. They are just coincidences. But if you're reading the Bible and a story is interrupted, there's probably a reason. I used to work with this guy that... uh, well, we called him Cozy. He didn't like that. His last name was Kazira, Co- uh, so we called him, what's up, Cozy? Um, he could not be on time to a meeting. He just couldn't, and I couldn't say anything about it because he was my boss. But <laughs> it felt like he would let anything and everything distract him on the way to a meeting that he set. And then he would say, Greg, Greg, 
you know, you just, you just got to die. D-I-E, divine interruptions every day. Of course, my orderly, time-sensitive brain would think, that's great, but just die a little earlier so you can be here on time. <laughs> Mark, as an author, he's telling these stories of interruption on purpose because there's a reason they are divine interruptions. So the story is literally being loaded with layer after layer of meaning, like a sandwich. And so, what is it that Mark is trying to tell us through these stories of Jesus? And the answer is, so much. Overall, if you're paying attention, these stories are in complete contrast. They are intentionally opposite from each other. What do I mean? So first, Jairus has a name. Anybody notice that? You're reading this story. Two main things happen, and only one of the players gets a name. What's the woman's name? <laughs> no, we don't know. We don't know her name. It's because Mark is intentionally showing us just how different these people are from each other. In life, social class, in the way that they feel about themselves. He sets that tone with the most basic concept. He has a name. and She remains nameless. And then, the man, he advocates for his female child in public, while the woman couldn't openly advocate for herself. Why? Because in first century Middle Eastern culture, women were restricted from speaking to men in public. So Jairus, Jairus can just walk up to Jesus, interrupt whatever is going on, and ask for whatever he needs. But the woman, what were her options? Listen, she doesn't sneak up behind Jesus and touch his robe because she didn't think he would hear her or because she didn't think that he was good. She snuck up because she wasn't allowed to ask. And Mark is making it clear that she has to sneak up because she has no one that will speak up. That'll preach. Come on, that'll preach. Actually, if we back up in the book of Mark to uh, Mark chapter 2, we find the story of a paralytic man, a man that has no ability to go seek after healing from Jesus on his own. But if you remember the story, he's brought there by his friends. They are so bold that they tear the roof off of the house where Jesus is and lower their friend down to Jesus. Jairus can interrupt. The friends can literally destroy someone's house. But this woman has to hide what she's hoping for. Where, where are this woman's friends? Where are the men? Where are her advocates? See, for us as a reader, in our haste, in our context, in our culture, in our world, we might think that these two people are just the same. They're both women. They're just different in age. They're just people that need healing from Jesus. But in a culture that only valued the voice of men, Jairus, 
have the honor of his daughter being healed in private in the emotional comfort of his own home. This woman has to pile risk upon risk and attempt to hide her hope for healing in a public place because there was no one that would speak up for her. And there's the contrast, not just of their cultural differences, but their social standing. This, this woman's issue of blood would have made her perpetually, ceremonially unclean. For 12 years, even if she had wanted to make the trip to Jerusalem and go to the temple for Passover or for a religious festival, she wouldn't have been allowed in. The religious law would have prohibited it. Now, locally... Being ceremonially unclean would not restrict someone from going to their local synagogue, but it is likely, almost sure, that 12 years in, that shame had pushed her out. Compare this with Jairus and his daughter. He's literally one of the leaders at the local synagogue. He probably knows who this woman is. He's surely one of the most influential people in town. Mark is adding the layers to the sandwich. Then there's the question of wealth. We don't know for sure. Mark doesn't use these words. He doesn't say this guy was wealthy, okay? But it's safe to assume that Jairus has a level of wealth and security. And it's not just an assumption just because... He's named because he has an important role. We can start to assume that because Mark specifically leads us to that assumption by telling us that the woman has nothing. See, she used to, if that's implied. But now she's poor because she spent everything that she had on her illness, on doctors. And Mark actually says she suffered a great deal under the care of many Doctors, people she was meant to trust. They said instead of getting better, she grew worse. Mark does this to infer that these doctors, the people that she should have been helped by, had taken advantage of her. That they could see that they weren't helping, but as long as she had money, they would figuratively bleed her dry. So it makes it all the more meaningful that when she is healed, when Mark says that her bleeding stopped, the words there that we translate stopped, literally means dried up. They had taken all of her money. But he's the one that brought healing and dried up the problem. Then think about this. All the doctors couldn't help her. She could not, no matter what she did, no matter how much money she had, no matter how many doctors she had seen, she could not keep herself from bleeding. And then Jesus could not keep himself from healing. Because when she touched his clothes, the healing power could not be stopped, could not be kept in. It flowed from his body without his consent, without him consciously choosing to do so. This is, as far as I can tell, the only unintentional healing in all of the Gospels. 
Now, some will say, well, of course he knew. He's Jesus. He had eyes in the back of his head. He just wanted her to speak up for herself. But it literally says that he turned around but kept looking around to see who had done it. So there are plenty of other times in the scriptures where the author says, and Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, that Jesus is pointed out as knowing someone's thoughts, as knowing something that he could not have known, but not here. Mark means to tell us exactly what it says. That he was so full of power to heal. Her faith was so full of hope that the juxtaposition of she could not stop bleeding, but he could stop, not stop healing. Jesus is used to healing intentionally, empathetically, compassionately, face to face, eye to eye, on purpose. And then a woman that for 12 years had had no control of her life, couldn't keep from bleeding, is made whole by Jesus who could not keep himself from healing. And if you're looking closely, if you're looking closely, you just might start to see the foreshadowing of Jesus' future. Here, Jesus doesn't see who touched him. And soon, Jesus would be blindfolded and beaten. Tell us who struck you, Jesus. It reminds us that when the garments that this woman had touched for her healing would be gambled away by soldiers. When her body bleeding uncontrollably, it telegraphs the moment when his body would be broken bleeding uncontrollably on a cross to cover the sins of the world, of all the people within his eyesight and beyond, whether they knew it or not. There's one last parallel here, one last contrast that, that links the stories of this woman and a young girl. And listen to what it says here, here at the end. We read it, but I'll read it again. It says, He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. Right there at the last second, there's like this M. Night Shyamalan moment where you see one last thing that you were introduced to at the very beginning of the story, that then, if you remember what we've talked about in previous weeks, that when you see certain things in the scriptures, you're supposed to pay attention. Last week, Jesus on the mountainside, choosing his 12 disciples, prophesying, putting out forth that these will represent the 12 tribes that will be united again. At the beginning of this story, we're told that the woman had been bleeding for how long? 12 years. This woman has been ill the entire length of this little girl's life. This is no coincidence. This is told to us on purpose. It's not coincidence. We're supposed to see that these healings 
One of a woman ill for 12 years. One little girl's entire lifetime. Opposite in every single way. We're supposed to see this as a symbol that Jesus is healing the 12 tribes of Israel. Making them whole. Come on, right? I mean, there's so much. There's just so much here, guys. So we have to get to the end where we say, well, how do we participate with any of this? Well, when you put it all together, I think that the single overarching message that we should walk away with is about women. Because these women aren't just pawns in a story about how Jesus can heal. They're not side notes in a secret message about the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not supposed to just learn a lesson and then forget about the women. The women are front and center because the women are the primary point. Mark has spent all this time talking about them. Jesus has spent all this time with them. And all the opposites, all the contrast is just to make it as clear as day that the gap between these women is filled by Jesus. There is no woman, listen, with your ears, there is no woman, no person that calls themselves woman anywhere on the spectrum of this life that is overlooked or left out by Jesus. Just listen. Jesus healed plenty of people in the Gospels. Mark, Mark didn't have to. We always have to remember this when we read stories. The writer did not have to tell us this particular story. Mark didn't have to tell us this story the way that he did. He didn't have to sandwich these two things together about two women on opposite ends of a spectrum from each other. He could have just told us more stories about men. There's plenty of stories of men being healed. Mark wants us to see how Jesus cares about women in a way that no one else does. He doesn't rebuke the woman for touching him. He doesn't demand his power back. When he healed the little girl, he doesn't make a public spectacle of her. He doesn't trot out and say, look how great I am. I just rose this little girl from the dead. He says, give her something to eat. He honors them where they are because where they belong is in his kingdom. No woman can be so far out on the edges that Jesus does not welcome them in. So let me just speak to the men in the room for a minute. Men, where are the women in your life? Are they on the edge? Are they a plot device? Are they a character meant to get your point across? Or are they the most honored layers of the story? Listen, me saying that women should be honored is not the same as saying women are weak. Women are strong. 
This unnamed woman took care of herself. She sought out doctors with her own money. She was bold. She went and grabbed his clothes knowing the potential consequences. But just because women are strong and wise and brilliant doesn't mean that they don't also benefit from the men in their lives advocating on their behalf and choosing to make them central instead of on the edge. So many years, it has been the culture that women are a plot device, that women are a side note. But I think that God, in Jesus, is telling us so many ways that women are the point. Jesus was born by a woman. The first testimony of Jesus being resurrected was given by a woman. They're not on the edges. Women, you are not on the edges. You are smack dab right in the middle of the kingdom of God. And I hope that this is a place that is safe for you, where the men around you will not look at you as the people that just hold the babies in the nursery, but the people that carry the mission and vision and voice of Jesus Christ in this world. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, I thank, that, thank you that you gave Jesus an earthly mother that we would not think of this whole thing as only including men. That you humbled yourself to be mothered, to be raised. And in so many ways, I wonder if the way you treated women wasn't just a direct effect because you'd been raised by one. Remind us where we've come from. No one of us in this room is here without women, without a woman birthing us, raising us, caring for us, teaching us, loving us. Later today, people will celebrate a bunch of men running around on a field, and I pray that we celebrate the women in our lives. Moving us with your Holy Spirit. Let us not be afraid of femininity. Let, let us not expect it to be weak or soft. For our eyes to be open to all of its strength. Amen.